I'm Taylor, and this is the Hopeless Sports Magic Podcast. Welcome in, everyone, to this episode of the Hopeless Sports Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I'm going to give you a look back at the Falcons' week four loss to the Packers and a review of the NLDS game one that the Braves happily won to give the city of Atlanta something to cheer about. Won this one nine to five. So it was a bit of a mixed emotions weekend or beginning to this week for Atlanta fans here. Start off, we'll go into the Falcons' loss um, as expected to start the show and then finish off the end on a high note talking about what I thought of the game one win and what I look what I'm looking for coming into the remaining games of this series. So to jump right in, the Falcons lost week four, obviously, to the Packers. The final score was 30 to 16. Looks a lot closer on the scoreboard than how the game was really played. Green Bay took the lead early, scored on the first drive, and then basically controlled the game from that point on. The Falcons showed the ability to move the ball pretty consistently, but also showed the inability to finish in the red zone, including a 20-play drive that took most of the second quarter, which somehow still ended in a, in a field goal. Julio... Jones did play in this game. However, he was also limited at the, the start and then re-aggravated the hamstring injury that he was dealing with coming in and then was just ruled out after a certain point. And that opened the door for Calvin Ridley to do damage. However, the Falcons just didn't capitalize on that at all. Calvin actually ended the game catchless. So you could kind of see that the Packers really focused their game plan on stopping Calvin Ridley and forcing other receivers to beat the Packers defense in certain ways. And given the final score and lack of passing scores in this game, they were unable to do that. Matt Ryan finished with he went 28 of 39 with 285 yards. And like I said, no touch, no passing touchdowns and finished with a 79.7 QBR. Partially, this is due to some drop balls, notably by Christian Blake. Zacchaeus dropped a couple, I believe, and then just kind of subpar receiver play by the guys that replaced injured players in this game. And then other times, it was just Matt missing some throws. He had Ridley on a deep ball pretty early in the game and then just missed it. And then there were some other throws where he just notably in the red zone on that 20 play drive, he threw the ball behind, I believe it was Christian Blake. Partially, I mean, you do want to keep the ball down on that throw, given that there's safety help in the middle of the field. So you don't want to throw a hospital pass where the receivers can end up getting drilled. But he still kind of overdid it with throwing the ball behind him and the receivers obviously couldn't really adjust to the throw that well and ended up dropping it there were other throws um on a corner on corner routes and throws especially to the sideline Matt's just seemed to consistently struggle with hitting those guys and i do 
appreciate that at least the way he's missing him, he's throwing the ball to the sideline to where either his receiver is going to get it or nobody's going to get it, but you still, you would rather it be a catch than an incompletion. Obviously the injury woes didn't stop at Julio Jones. They also included DeMonte Casey who tore his Achilles and is done for the year. Soon as I saw the play, it really was reminiscent of Ricardo Allen's injury a couple years ago. So my first assumption was that it was an Achilles injury. And given the fact that he was carted off the field, you knew it was something severe. So there's another casualty on this defense in this basically lost season at this point, which only poured salt on the wound overall as a... Aaron Rodgers finished. He went 27 of 33 for 327 yards and four touchdowns with a 96.9. So basically a 97 QBR. And this was all done with Devontae Adams out of this game, despite his, um, I guess, trying to refute the fact that he couldn't play on Twitter, um, which he later deleted. Um, It's just... Same old, same old with the Falcons secondary guys blowing assignments, guys leaving. It's it's one thing if you, especially given the receivers in the division that this team constantly goes up against, even though they haven't played a division game yet. Um, They just... It's one thing if you let the if you make it try to make a play and the receiver just beats you. That's going to happen with guys like Michael Thomas, DJ Moore, and Mike Evans and Chris Godwin if he's healthy. But with this, it's or even Devontae Adams in this game, but Devontae's out. And like they had a play where the I believe it was the first drive, the touchdown to Aaron Jones. He just ran a five yard out route and nobody followed him because Isaiah Oliver didn't have any discipline in as far as which zone he was supposed to cover in the scheme of the defense. And so he just, it was pitch and catch for the Packers on that play. It's been, and then on top of that, with those injuries coming in, you know, you got guys that are coming in off the practice squad. If, if not that you have rookies that don't have, that much experience in this game going up against the probably the third best quarterback in the NFL right now, who's gonna be one of the best guys to take advantage of bad eye discipline, to take advantage of blown coverage assignments. He doesn't Aaron Rodgers doesn't miss those things. He's every little mistake in your scheme, he will pick you apart. And that's exactly what happened last night. It's the reason why he only had six incompletions in that game, which multiple ones were due to pressure created by Grady Jarrett, who was one of the few guys that actually played a solid game on the entire defense last night. There's just, it was like they were getting torched all night long, but there was still like an upbeat mentality. Now, I mean, you don't want just sulking, but at the same time, there's just no accountability on this defense anymore. They're just content to, look like absolute garbage and then make one flashy play on first or second down (laughs) to then give up a huge gain on third down or give up a score. And 
it's almost like they cared all they care about is the personal stats and not the fact that this team is near the bottom in every defensive category involving the passing game. And it's the reason why even with Adams out, I knew that some serious damage was going to be done through the air in this game, especially given that Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers have worked as basically a dynamic duo to create this lethal offense that is almost a step above what the Falcons were doing during the Super Bowl run. I mean, able to use three running backs, multiple receivers, every guy's skill set was being used as efficiently as possible. And yet the Falcons are sitting over here and underutilizing, utilizing one of the best receivers in the game in Julio Jones prior to the injury. At this point, there's just there's just such a the guys that are even the guys that are performing at a respectable level are just content with mediocrity and they're just underplayed to their talent granted some of that's to the coaching staff and the fact that I think Dan Quinn has completely lost the locker room of this team altogether but you still want to have at least those individual leaders on the team itself that are gonna hold other guys accountable the guys that have been through thick and thin the guys that have that know what it's like to be at the top of this league and we're just not seeing that and the major flaw, one of the major flaws in Dirk Cutter's offense was still shown, and it was the reason why this team couldn't execute in the red zone and still only put up 16 points in this game. There's just such an over-dependence on the passing game to where the team, like Todd had 16 carries for 57 yards. He did have a couple of scores. One of them was kind of at garbage time, which didn't really matter, but Besides the touches from Todd with the 16 carries, the running game, the other backs only really got three or four catches. Some of that is playing from behind, but you still shouldn't be passing four out of every five plays like we've seen. I think the major reason why that 20 play drive stalled out was because the team was so overly dependent on the passing game and you're not going to have everything go right or go right enough on a passing play that many times in a row to the point to where just the mathematics of it all are going to come back around and you're going to end up coming up short when you get to those goal to go situations. And that's exactly what we saw. They let this team that was supposed to have an improved offensive line Still allowed Matt Ryan to get sacked four times. Zadarius Smith really took over this game at times with his rover position abilities. And I mean, the best play he had was he just lined up right at the A gap and straight bull rushed Chris Lindstrom and then took Mac, Matt down at the same time. There's just no. Everything is predictable. Everything is what you would expect to see there's nothing it's it's like the offense is overly simplified to a fault to where t- 
teams can see what's coming. There's none. That's what is missing compared to when Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. There's no curveballs. There's nothing that's keeping the defense on their toes. There's nothing that's making them scramble to look at the screenshots on the sideline using the Microsoft tablets. There's you come in. It's like what the defense can come in with as a game plan and look at all week and practice and study is all you're ever going to see. And there's nothing that can, that is really surprising these defenses on Sunday. And I think it's a major reason why the team is struggling to finish late in the games offensively. There's just been, it's, it's, it's the same mistakes across the board all season long. It's just that nobody, this this team just needs a fresh start across the board. Even if the even the guys that are providing, except maybe Ridley, there's an argument to keep Matt here. There's an argument to keep Julio here, but I would probably trade Grady Jarrett, given that he has a massive contract that he just signed, and this team is not getting any better anytime soon. So you want to open up that cap space, and you know, given the high level that he's playing at as probably the second best defensive tackle, if not the best three technique defensive tackle in the NFL, you know, somebody is going to overpay for him and give you either a lot of draft picks or young guys that can really grow and develop under a new, just all around better coaching staff. This team is struggling to a point where, you don't even I don't even think it's just the it's just Dan Quinn as a head coach anymore. This team has the oldest talent in the NFL. The guys that are the key providers on this team, aside from Calvin Ridley, are the guys that were the difference makers on the Super Bowl team. And you see that, oh, that's a Super Bowl caliber team that came up just short. That game was now approaching four years ago. It's getting to where, I mean, in the NFL, it's with as physical as the game is, guys age at a rapid rate to where, especially with Julio, you can, this is the first time I think I've, it's been easy to see that age is starting to catch up to him. And Matt has slowly started to fade a little bit. He was never, he never had the biggest arm, but his, the ball is losing a little bit of zip. He clearly can't move like he used to when he was younger, given that he's 35. That's no surprise. It's like he can still play as a solid quarterback, but he's just not the top seven, top five quarterback that we've seen in years past. And I think if he's going to stick around, the team is going to have to be built around the defense and around the power running game. I've talked about how, I think the future of this team, especially with the kind of weapons that New Orleans has, granted, they are probably going to blow everything up after this year. It's not looking like they're going to be a Super Bowl caliber team anyway. And I think even if they do win, they'd have to blow everything up, given the fact that they're negative $70 million in cap space or something like that going into next year. But Tampa has a ton of offensive weapons. Granted, they are in a short window as well. And then Carolina has Christian McCaffrey, the best running back in the league. And they're clearly building towards the future there with Teddy Bridgewater as well. 
I think the ultimate counter to the division and to the other teams that are really having success in this league, like Arizona, Seattle, and basically the entire NFC West is you have to have a top level defense. San Francisco was the only other team that's really built around defense. That's having major success consistently now. And I think that opens the door for Atlanta to be the next team that does that, especially given that Denver has now since their Super Bowl, Super Bowl run, those guys have aged out Von Miller, even if he, was able to play this year, I don't think would be the same. And there's just, given the numbers of it, the Falcons have an opportunity, I think, in the future to be that next team that's really built around an elite defense. And it'll take pressure off of Matt Ryan, who I think at the earliest, the next time this team will be competitive will be 38 or so. So it's just, it's about... The future that you have to look at the future of this team because clearly after last year and you can argue even the year before that this team did not look at its future outlook. They they bet they bet the house on the present and didn't get the deck that they wanted and they're paying the price for that now to where we're going to be in a horrible situation with the cap that we're currently at and with all the aged aging players that we have. So the only positive, I guess I can continue to look at for this team is optimism for what the future is going to look like. Although how, with how much of a struggle it was with the Braves rebuild, granted it's going to be, I think a little bit shorter with the fact that NFL rebuilds don't take as long because of how much turnover there is compared to major league baseball. But that's basically all, you're hanging on to as a Falcons fan. Some people, given the repeated failures of this team, are completely leaving the team altogether. I can't bring myself to do that, and I don't think I ever will. But the, for the people that are leaving, given the incompetency, incompetency of this of the coaching, of the players, of the front office, I don't blame them. So hopefully this team can honestly tank for this season. Although given the second half runs that this team has had the last couple of years, I still think Quinn will get fired, but I just hope we don't get screwed with a mid round pick. So because of that, I'm not even going to think about who they should draft with a top three or top five pick, or maybe even the first overall pick. So you might see that, Later in the season, if it continue, if this season continues how it how it is, but just in case we get another classic seven and nine finish from Dan Quinn, I'm gonna hold off on a draft prediction episode for now. Now to move over to a much more positive note. The Braves took care of business in game one, winning nine to five against the Miami Marlins in Houston, Texas at Minute Maid Park, home of the Houston Asterix. Yes, I said Asterix. Max Fried was on the mound and for the Braves and Sandy Alcantara, Alcantara for the Marlins. The most interesting one of the most interesting aspects of this game, at least, was 
Max Fried came in and didn't really have his best stuff. He was missing location with his fastball, especially even when he would get ahead in the count on guys and was only able to work four innings. He did throw 70 pitches, didn't go too high. So if they do need him for a game four or a game five, he should be pretty well rested, which I think was a solid move by Snit on that part. And then... The Marlins, I think a big reason why they lost this game, at least as by how much as they as they did, was because I think Don Mattingly actually left Alcantara in for an extra inning too long. He was pretty solid in this game. He had eight strikeouts when uh, he went six innings but still came back with a loss because of how poorly he pitched in the seventh inning. He gave up two hard hit singles out of the infield. And then which really got a rally going. Now you're probably saying Taylor, it's only two singles. That's not really doing a lot of damage. The issue is that really gave the Braves momentum. And I think part of the reason why it caused such a problem was that was not the third time through the order, but the fourth time through the order. So by that point, after the guys seeing him again, especially with it being Acuna and Freddie in the one and two spot in the lineup, you knew that damage was coming, especially with the fact that Ronald did massive damage with a solo shot and a leadoff homer in the within two pitches of seeing Sandy. So you know by the fourth time through, the ball's moving in at, in slow motion for him. Not to mention that Ronald has shown the ability to rise to the occasion when somebody is throwing at him or at least hits him with a pitch. Now, I don't think that pitch was intentional because they constantly, they do throw at Ronald at times, but then they also work inside. I think that was just a two-seamer that ran in on Ronald that hit him, but it was still motivating for the Braves and I think it helped even more the way that the Marlins handled it at the time with trying to almost start conflict that wasn't there or could have really been nipped away immediately but they were almost taunting Ronald with (coughs) Sandy really almost squaring him up at the mound and then guys were chirping at Ronald from the dugout. And that's just not something you want to do to this Braves offense is give them any momentum, give them any kind of motivation. And they made the Marlins pay for that. Even in that inning, the bullpen came in and really made up the difference after Max struggled during the start. Will Smith was lights out. Tyler Matzik had another dominant inning. He struck out the side when he came in. The only guy that really had any trouble at all was Chris Martin, and he was still able to work out of the inning with, I believe, only a run scored and a little bit of a high pitch count. I think that was mostly due to him kind of flirting around with guys with his breaking ball instead of really attacking guys with his fastball. I mean, it's mid, it's in the mid-90s, and he's pitching from a six foot eight frame, so it's going to appear even faster from that viewpoint for the hitter 
And when he really went back to his fastball after getting himself into trouble, he was able to work out of the inning. I think the major difference that you could see lacking from the Marlins is no Starling Marte. Of course, he broke a bone in his hand in game one of the wild card series against the Cubs. And there were rumors that he was going to be able to come in for defense and base running. But I guess given the fact that that can be covered by any other kind of bench player and you don't want to really risk injury on a guy long term, they chose to leave him off of the playoff roster for the series. We'll see if that if maybe base running mistakes or fielding mistakes are made to where you wish they would have taken a little bit more of a risk and had his defense in the outfield or his base running. The offense, the biggest people are going to talk about mostly, I think, the three run homer by Travis Darno, which really broke the game open, gave the Braves the lead for the second time to which they were able to carry to a win. Of course, I was ecstatic as that happened, and that's probably the most excited I've been in a while as a Braves fan. But the big thing I really want to look at is actually the bottom of the third inning. The Braves, of course, got a one nothing lead in the first with the solo shot from Acuna. And then after the after Freed kind of struggling a little bit with guys on, getting his pitch down up a little bit, especially in the second inning, the Marlins were able to get some runs across with I think it was three in that inning because the top of the second they Miguel Rojas hit a monster solo shot to tie the game. And that was when you kind of got a little bit scared as a Braves fan giving up three runs to be playing from behind at that point in the game. But the big moment for me was the two out damage that the Braves were able to do to really cut the lead to one after the hit by pitch on Ronald to where he was able to score a run off of a... Think it was Ozuna that drove him in that time, but just a not even you didn't they didn't even have to come back and tie it at that point. But you still you want to see an answer, you want to see a counterpunch, something to keep the Marlins on their toes and something to really keep the momentum in your favor. And that was the I think pivotal half inning for the Braves in this series to keep it at a one run game to where a young team like the Marlins is going to be playing the try not to lose game instead of the trying to win game where they're going to go after they're going to be more likely to not go after guys in the count they're going to try to fiddle around that's when you get into those hitter friendly counts that the Braves are able to do damage on or even leave something over the middle of the plate on the first pitch which is what the Braves have done even more damage on during the season The Braves not only did the damage of a three-run homer to take the lead, but even more of a, I guess, putting your foot on the gas kind of moment that you it's a bit of a relief to see out of an Atlanta team was that two-run homer by Dansby, where you just know that I mean, you can obviously you can never trust an Atlanta team with a lead. So the more distance that you can create on the scoreboard, the 
more at ease. You're going to put the team and the fan base as a whole. And I think that really was the dagger that killed any kind of chance that the Marlins had in this game. They were able to get some guys on in the eighth inning, but given the deficit that they had to make up and just the lack of outs that they had to give, you knew that it was going to take a Miami miracle for that to happen, and that just never came to fruition for them. Now to look forward to game two of this series, which will be on MLB Network instead of Fox Sports 1. I absolutely hate that. It's going to be a pain in the butt to try to get to where I can view this game. But it'll be Ian Anderson on the mound for the Braves, who has shown through his Game 2 performance in the Wild Card Series that these big moments are not going to phase him against Pablo Lopez for the Miami Marlins. This is a very interesting decision by Miami to start Lopez in Game 2 mainly because, obviously, it's a best-of-five series. So if you put Lopez out, who has been very inconsistent against the Braves this season, had a start where he went seven runs. He went only went one and two-thirds innings and gave up seven runs and then had a couple of starts where he was pitched where he pitched well, had a five-inning scoreless outing and then six innings of two-run ball. That kind of inconsistency against Atlanta and then... You can kind of talk about the, granted there has been development for Miami this year, but he was still pretty much heavily hit in prior seasons by the Braves. So you expect them to definitely do more damage to him than what they would do against the ace of Miami staff, which is Sixto Sanchez. I did see some velocity fade towards the end of game two of the wild card series that the Marlins had when they were pitching when they were playing in Chicago against the Cubs, but I didn't think it was that noticeable until it was kind of even brought up by the broadcast crew in Chicago. So I would have expected Sixto to start game two, but maybe that shows the trust that they have in Pablo Lopez. Maybe that's being precautious, showing caution with maybe there's fatigue issues for Sanchez and they want to give him an extra day of rest given that there's no off days during this series. I think that I honestly think it's a bad move because this is not ever given in the playoff scenario and the fact that the Braves also won game one. You lose, Lopez comes out and doesn't have his best stuff against the Braves. Now you're down 2-0 and you need three straight really good games. And your ace is pitching with his back against the wall instead of with an equal chance to come away with a win in the series. So I just don't think that's a very comfortable position to put Sanchez in, even though he is the ace because of the youth and the inexperience granted Lopez is only 24 but he has still been in the big leagues for a much more extended period of time (laughs) and doesn't have really at least he doesn't really have any kind of playoff pedigree that Anderson has at least even shown in his playoff start against Cincinnati I don't want to say, I'm definitely not going to say the series is over after one game, but 
I like the momentum shift. It's, it's just huge for the Braves to take care of business in game one, just to have that. You can, you can just play in a much more relaxed manner. Like you're still maintaining focus, still maintaining intensity, but you're not overly stressed. You're not anxious when you have that game one win to look back on and to and show that you were able to come out on top early in the series. Another interesting aspect that just shows the resilience of this team is not only did Max Fried not have his best stuff, but Freddie Freeman actually had an o for, went over in this game. He did have a walk, I believe, in the bottom of the eighth inning when the game was kind of out of reach, but Freddie didn't really do much, had an opportunity to drive in a run or even a, multiple runners with a at bat on, with guys on first and second, but hit into a fielder's choice, which still kept the double play intact for that inning and gave the Marlins actually a chance to get out of that inning. And then showed some of his willingness to swing at the first pitch, which didn't really help him out. He had a couple of jam shots and then some pop flies into the outfield. So the best hit, arguably the best hitter on the Braves and the most likely the NL MVP didn't really play well in this game. And yet the Braves were still able to win by a four run margin and have the closer coming in in a non-save situation to shut the door. So I think you're going to see, I don't know if granted Ronald has destroyed the Marlins his entire career pretty much, but I still don't think that he's going to be able to put up a home run or two or three hits in every single game. He might make me want to shut my own mouth the rest of the series, but it's just good to see that there's guys, not every guy is going to be on his game that when not every, you don't have everybody on their game that the team is still successful and resilient enough, enough that they can, come out with a victory because that's ultimately what I think separates the good teams from the world series winning teams is the ability to make adjustments, the ability to push through adversity. When you know that one of the guys that you really have depended on all season long, hasn't really played well. And yet you're still able to be successful and make those hits and make those plays that you need to, um, Freddie did have a nice play at first base, but that was really the only thing he had to show for in this game. And he wasn't the only one that made some nice plays, whether it was Dansby showing some good range or Ozzy, who had multiple um, gold glove caliber plays, had a diving stop in the, uh, I think it was the third inning that really helped, I think, keep Max's pitch count down to at least 70 even though he was only working a short amount of innings because it was on a first pitch out. And there's a big difference between allowing a guy to really ambush you and get a base hit to lead off an inning and a guy getting out on the first pitch to where you can really work efficiently and get through the inning smoothly. And then um, just guys that, it's you just get the sense that there's so many guys that can come through in this lineup from top to bottom that you just you don't need everybody to be on their game. You don't need everything to go according to plan. 
Same thing with the bullpen. You can afford to have a starter or even a relief pitcher like today it was Chris it happened to be Chris Martin. You can have one of those guys kind of be off their game a little bit and you still know you're going to win. You don't have a situation like last year where Martin went down and then the entire bullpen went to crap because there was just so little room to there was no wiggle room for the team to be able to make little mistakes or have things that were out of their control really influence the result of the game. So there's just more there's I think there's more depth even with Soroka being gone in the starting rotation given the effectiveness of the bullpen and the lineup I think a big reason for both might even be Travis Darno as calling the game as a catcher and providing the pop and the cleanup cleanup spot in the lineup this year. But I just have a much more optimistic feeling about this team. And given I just I was texting with Chase throughout this game. And when Darno hit the home run to center field to give the Braves the lead, I instantly told him and he had the same kind of response as I did that this this team's just different. This team can handle adversity. This team can handle a flurry of punches and still come out of in and still survive that round and get ready for the next round to come back and counter punch and ultimately come out on top in these series is whether it's going to be a three game series, a five game series or a seven game series. I just trust this team to handle whatever is thrown at them. So to conclude, we have a much more optimistic look for the Braves compared to the Falcons, obviously. I don't want to give a score prediction for game two for fear of jinxing, but I really think that there's a solid chance that the Braves can keep this a shorter series. I definitely don't think it's going to go to um, five games at this point, which given the result of game five last year, that's a beautiful thing to hear. That's music to a Braves fan's ears, but it'll be... I believe a 208 start again tomorrow. Ian Anderson and Pablo Lopez on the mound for the Braves and Marlins respectively. And hopefully the Braves are able to come out on top and really have the NLCS in their sights heading into mid to late October. So thank you so much for listening. Make sure to add the podcast on Instagram at Hopeless Sports Mantic and on Twitter at Sports Mantic. And make sure to like the podcast on whichever platform you listen to, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, Breaker, Google Podcasts, or any other platform. Thank you so much for listening again, and rise up and chop on.